Hello, my name is Ashley Balin, and welcome to Baby Puppy, the parenting podcast for anyone raising a human or fur baby. Now, before I start getting angry emails from people in the dog community or parenting community about how different raising a dog is from a child, trust me, I know, I know, I'm not saying they're the same at all. But as a professional dog trainer and behavior consultant and a mother, there are a startling number of similarities. I've applied strategies from my dog training education and experience to parenting with great success and vice versa. From the early days with an infant or puppy, dealing with teething, crate or crib training, socialization and language acquisition, to nutrition, anxiety, coping mechanisms, independence, confidence building and more, it's impossible to deny a crossover. On each episode of this podcast, we'll explore a different topic and speak with a parenting expert to gain insight, strategies, and advice while comparing them to my experience working with dogs. Join me on this journey to raise confident, empathetic, respectful, happy, and healthy dogs and humans. On this episode, I chat with speech-language pathologist and founder of Babbling Babies, Rebecca Drory. Rebecca and I knew each other prior to this recording, and you'll see that we get a little sidetracked on a number of occasions, but we delve deep into the importance of active engagement and interaction for early language acquisition, the benefits of play-based learning, and toys. We talk a lot about the best toys for both babies and dogs, and the ones to avoid altogether. I really loved chatting with Rebecca, and I think you'll get a lot out of this conversation. Enjoy. I can like tell you, like God forbid, I won't, but God forbid, like I give identifying information about a, a client by, act. I'm just taking off my shoes. I f- I'll feel better if I No, please sit. do. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So if I like by accident, like yes, give, I can edit things okay. out or yeah. if you, even if you are like stumbling and say a lot of ums yeah. and whatever sure. it is, you are more than welcome to cut things out afterwards. Okay. Okay. Well, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for, <laughs> thank you for doing this. I appreciate no it. I know I'm really excited about actually having you here because, okay, we'll get into it, but I have a lot of questions for you. Yeah, you and always do. Yes. <laughs> Very good questions. Well, we'll, we'll see about that. Uh, well, the reason I like asking you questions is because you have helpful answers. Okay. So that's why, mm-hmm. why I wanted to talk to you about a lot of this, but let's just start with your name and what you do professionally. So my name, you want my full name? (laughs) (laughs) If if you're willing to share it. Yeah. So my name is Rebecca Drury and I'm a speech language pathologist in Toronto. And um, as speech language pathologists, we're not actually allowed. Our college in Ontario doesn't allow us to state that we have an expertise, but... um, But you're going to anyways? We are not allowed to say you have an expertise, but um, I would say most clinicians in in Ontario who have been in the field for a long time they kind of have a little niche where they find themselves where their true passion lies and I would say that my true passion I've always worked with preschoolers I dabble a little bit with school age school age children but my love and my passion was with is with preschoolers and particularly it's with late talkers and we can go into a little bit about what that means and uh, motor speech disorders and articulation and phonology and most importantly where I really thrive is with parent training and consultation which is what I love so just step back for a second Mm -hmm. what what is phonology I assume it has something to do with phonics you got it so (laughs) phonology is just the and oh my 
I feel, I hope that there's no other speech, speech language <laughs> pathologist listening because we always, in school, we had to learn the difference between phon, phonemic and phonologic and all the differences. But yes, it's the, it's the study of sounds. It's the learning of sounds. It's the, it's the, what knowledge in your brain you have of speech sounds. So like that, an S is the S sound, right? Okay. And so recognizing where that stands in certain words and things like that. Okay. And you have your own kids? I do. How many? I have two. I have two little boys. They're 19 months apart. So I have Harley and he's five. And I have Jeremy who is three and a half. And do you have any dogs? I ha- I do not have dogs. No? But I wish I had dogs. My, do you? Of course. Why, but, um, why don't you have dogs? My husband is deathly allergic. My really? Hus- yes. My husband's allergic to the world. He <laughs> is allergic to peanuts, nuts. He's allergic to... Green, anything green he's allergic to dogs. anything green like yeah, vegetables like vegetables <laughs> okay. he's allergic to anything live like dogs horses cats bunnies you name it so he's okay with humans with your children maybe depends on the day <laughs> yeah. depends on who it's with but yes yeah. um so there's absolutely no dogs allowed in my house which is sad because i think i i think i would love dogs and we talk about you and i well, yeah we'll get into that but yeah. we've talked before about the relationships between um, positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement and and just the growth and development of so you're gonna have to get like a chicken or a snake or oh something goodness. else oh my goodness maybe no. you my can you can train that. chickens just as well as you can train I dogs know, it's true and the chickens yeah. can live out in the backyard exactly in, and in i think our neighborhood we we live in the same neighborhood yeah, we do. and our neighborhood was one of the the test yes. areas you got it yeah, mm-hmm. I hear chickens in my backyard all the time. I never do. Really? And we're just a street over. Never. I know. Maybe it must be one of my direct neighbors. There you go. Uh, okay, so as oh, sorry, I'm like sure people hair. listening can figure out, we have met before. Yeah, many times, <laughs> yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we met, I guess it's almost two years ago now. Yes. My son was six months, mm-hmm. and he's just over two now, so maybe around a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And we were, we participated in your Babbling Babies program, Mm -hmm. and that's how we had initially met. And uh, I want to go into what that program is a little bit in a second, but the reason that I wanted to have you on this program is because, I mean, first of all, it was one of the best classes that we took together, (laughs) but also I was starting to float around the idea of doing this podcast at that time. And then some of the conversations that we had afterwards kind of solidified in my mind that I was on the right path in terms of this being a good idea. So yeah, before we kind of revisit some of those conversations, can you talk about what the Babbling Babies program is? Mm -hmm. So the Babbling Babies program, there's nothing else like it that I know of. (laughs) I mean, I've researched long and far, um, it's in Toronto. Um, it's very, very small. It is an interactive uh, baby program for babies who are six to 12 months of age to attend with their caregivers, either their parents or their nannies or their grandparents. Um, we've had aunts and uncles, uh, whoever to attend. It's six weeks long. Each session is about 45 minutes. And within the class, it's highly structured. Um, so each week that the babies come in, they can recognize a certain routine that is established. And we'll talk about routines and yes. how that helps with language learning. Um, but really, it's to I always, we always say that the program is for both the parent and the baby. Um, so it's something a little bit different um, that's out there. A lot of 
I would say in the in the community in Toronto, um, most babies attend baby programs that such as music um, and maybe yoga. And this is unlike anything else. So it's to provide parents with ideas on how to support communication. And it also provides ideas on play development, what to look for, and what I didn't realize at the time, but what's become I would say the favorite part of the program for a majority of the participants that come are our toilets and what toys to buy and why we love certain toys in promoting. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about that, yeah. that later. <laughs> That's a conversation that I mm-hmm. have with my clients often also mm-hmm. in terms of which toys are, are worth buying and which ones should be avoided. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so let's start with just early language acquisition. Yep. In, in general. Mm-hmm. So in the dog world, yes, we introduce verbal cues primarily through either luring or shaping. Okay. Okay. So luring is when you use a motivator, which changes depending on the dog, but is usually falls into either food, affection, or a toy of some kind. Okay. And how luring works is that we encourage the dog to move in a desired way and then immediately mark the desired action with a word. And mm-hmm. shaping a behavior is done by marking and rewarding for successive approximation. And uh, then the moment that the dog clicks, then they realize what's expected of them and then they repeat it. Repeat so, the action. Repeat the action. Yes. So through both luring and shaping, we use consistency and repetition yep. and we mark the action with the word as it's being performed. Mm-hmm. And then once it's performed consistently, then we can start asking for that behavior with that verbal cue. Mm-hmm. So when I was taking your class, yes. <laughs> I noticed a similar approach in yes. terms of, you know, marking the baby's actions with words and using a lot of repetition and prompts to encourage a verbal or physical response. Yes. And I guess, can you talk a little bit about some of the strategies that you recommend for parents to get their infants familiar with common nouns or action words and how you go about encouraging babies to say those initial first words? Oh, very two-pronged yes. question. Um, I think when you look at early like development, early communication skills, I find a lot of the times parents or people in the general population think words, 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 words. And I think there's that pre-linguistic piece. And so what we know is very innate. So um when I meet with, because you know, I also have my private practice on the side, and when we go into details about communication and what we're looking for, parents are always so surprised. I cannot believe that 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 this just comes naturally to so many people, and we don't even need to think about it. So babies should be able to pick up language without any difficulties, um, as long as they're in a nurturing environment and have great attachment skills with their parents. So warm, positive, loving. They should be able to pick up whatever language is in the house. Um, I think what we can do to support that kind of development um, to ensure that the baby is able to pick up the language around them, and you were talking about actions actions and object words, but I think what goes beyond that is the idea of having a conversation um, and making sure that when you are communicating with your baby that you are communicating with them all the time so that they can hear language all around them. And one of the, one of, I think that if you're going to do anything and when you're thinking about baby language and being able to pick it up naturally, you got to use naturalistic moments. So beyond shaping, you know, you're talking about shaping and learning, doing something very specific. But I think if you are going to do 
anything, it would be to talk all the time and not worry specifically what you're talking about. And I think that's probably the key difference between humans and dogs is Mm -hmm. that humans have this developed prefrontal cortex that allows them to you know reason and deduce and problem solve Mm -hmm. and dogs don't have that ability necessarily so with a with a human as long as as you said they're in a nurturing environment there's a lot of language happening around Mm -hmm. them that whether they're actively being taught or not eventually Mm -hmm. they will they will naturally pick up the language that's around Mm -hmm. them while with a dog, if they're just listening to people talk all the time, it's mm-hmm. almost background. Yes. And they might, you know, they might pick up on a word or action here or there if they see it repeated in the same sequence or in the same environment over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. But in order for dogs to actually pick up specific uh, you know, words in connection to behaviors that are expected of them, they need to actually be, you know, actively introduced to those concepts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe... Dog training will be more similar to reading, uh, like in the in not, the sense that no, not necessarily. I don't no, because reading. I think you would when we talk in the. I think it needs to be again a conversation versus versus like specifically choosing words. Um, I, I I would compare it to if you were going to learn another like compared to dogs. I think one I'm talking about like typical developing communication. Right. I'm not talking about deviations beyond the normal curve. So I'm not talking about children who are born with a developmental delay or who, um, you know, once they're assessed, they do have a communication delay. I'm talking about typically typical development in babies. Um, I always bring it back to when you learn another language, because if you were, let's say, um, to learn, let's say French. Sure. If, you go and if you go and meet with your French teacher and they throw out oh you know a palm is an apple and a banana is banana and they never spoke to you in sentences you wouldn't pick it up you would never no, be able you to would be, just learn how to conjugate verbs which is what happened to me throughout all of elementary school right you would yeah. never pick it up so I always say and we talked about I say it in class all the time I say um your baby needs to it's very different from a dog. Your baby needs to hear you all day long. So if you are going, I always say, has anyone gone on an exchange before? And usually someone in the class says, yes, I was in Japan or I was in, I said, yep, have you spoken Japan before, uh, Japanese before you went? No. I said, okay. So if you stayed in your apartment all day long and didn't leave the house, you would never pick up the language. If you go out and sit on a park bench and watch everyone else go by who are communicating you might begin to understand it but you need to have active conversations with people you need to go into the cafe and speak and try to communicate with others to be able to say sentences and words in Japanese right which is the whole concept of like a French or Mandarin immersion program you got it right so I think and meanwhile I say to my clients to stop talking to their dog so much <laughs> so it's, it's kind of the opposite yeah. but I think I, I think at the same time is recognizing that um, having a conversation so you don't want to be talking over your baby all the time but you do want to be talking to your baby um, even if they don't understand because at some point they will take out that understanding and it will click. And it's not to say you can't use, we talk about keywords. Mm -hmm. It's not that you can't say, oh, you look like you're hungry. Mummy's going to go get you something to eat. Oh, here's a banana. Let's eat the banana. So you can still do different things with your voice, your intonation, your inflection to make that keyword pop out. This is kind of similar to a dog, right? Right. And you can say, oh, here's the banana. 
yummy banana. So there's ways to make it pop out at you, but I I think for babies especially, making sure that you're having that conversation is number one key. This is just on a side for a yeah. second. I don't know if you saw it online, but mm-hmm. there was an article that came out mm-hmm. with an SLP in Texas okay. that trained her dog how to communicate through words and sentences haven't seen it uh by using the strategies that she learned while working with children the dog was actually speaking so no 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 no, exactly so (laughs) our producer koji is here yeah exactly (laughs) he's playing charades in the corner so uh he got these i mean she got these buttons that are similar to like the the staples easy buttons Mm -hmm. and she got a big mac is that what they're called? It's an ace. It augmented an alternative communication device. Okay, I'm assuming well, there that's you go. what it is. Yeah. yeah. And she got she got about 30 of them. Mm-hmm. And she programmed each one of them to be a different word. Mm-hmm. And then she, you know, purposely coupled the word with a specific action or with an object. Yep. And just repetition over and over and mm-hmm. over again. So every time, for example, the dog was barking because he was scared, mm-hmm. then she would press the button that said scared. So every time the dog experienced an emotion of any kind, yes. she'd identify it with a word that was on one of these buttons and then with just common words uh that the you know the dog interacted with on a daily basis like food or treat or ball or you know stuffed animal or whatever it was Mm -hmm. and then after a couple months of doing this identification the dog started like forming sentences so by pressing the buttons on his own like to ask for things. So to would... ask for things or to communicate how he was feeling. So, for example, if there was a strange person that was outside the house, he would go over and press the buttons that said, like, scared person outside. Or if there was, if he was hungry, he would go over and say, like, food, water, hungry, thirsty, and, and those types of things. And she thought that it was incredible because she said that because dogs think in a more black and white kind mm-hmm. of way, mm-hmm. that she actually found it a lot easier to teach her dog to communicate with her than any child she had worked with previously. But it was just, it was, I just thought it was really interesting. I would, I wish I can give more insight to that, but I haven't, I haven't seen it. Yeah. No, I just thought it would be something that you'd, yeah, that you'd want to see because it was just, it was fascinating. And you'd probably understand more of her kind of approach because in the mm-hmm. video she talks a lot about the science behind it and she talks a lot about how she uses the same technique with the kids and what that is she's the meaning, working with. Yeah, and what is the meaning behind, like what is her goal for the dog is what I'm yeah. curious well, about. Well, I, like, I think her, it I was more of like a too. selfish goal that she had a dog that she wanted to be able to communicate with better and have a like a you know, better, stronger bond and relationship with mm-hmm. because her dog was, you know, barking and she was starting to identify that there was different types, types of, barks of barking in different situations. And she didn't know enough about dog behavior to be able mm-hmm. to identify what those different barks meant. So this was her way of, I guess, educating herself about what it was her dog was trying to say to her. Mm-hmm. And so I have so many questions just in general in terms <laughs> of like, I mean, you know, were the, those buttons in the same spot? Like, did she mix up the, like, just, I'm just curious how, like, in terms of natural language learning, like, what did she do? I'd have to look yeah, at it. I'd have to look at it too, because yeah. I really don't know that much about it. I think yeah. that the article I saw was in People Magazine, so it wasn't, uh, it wasn't that detailed. Yeah, and I'm curious who it is and what her background is yeah. and, and what she felt about it. And yeah, I wish I can give more insight, but. I know, we're going to have to look at the article after, yes, after we're finished. 100%, <laughs> because I don't want, you know, yeah. 
So I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I, I didn't believe yeah. it either. And what's funny is I'm part of all these different dog training communities mm-hmm. on Facebook in different places. And since this video went viral, mm-hmm. now there's all these different groups that are trying this with their own dogs to see what types of results they can get. And it's almost become this competition amongst dog uh, trainers to see uh, how far they can take this. So that's kind of what happened with um, like baby Einstein flashcards and the reading stuff, right? Which... Yeah, you know, which the isn't research great, showed uh, wasn't, yeah. you know, that the Einstein cards are actually not helping at all. That oh really? No, they, it was disproved. They there was a huge massive lawsuit. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's completely irrelevant to what we're talking about. But yeah. now I'm kind of <laughs> no, but now I'm kind of curious. So yeah. what what happened with the flashcards? I don't know this whole story. So baby Einstein came I, again. I want to like. I think what's really important when you're like an allied health professional is to make sure that you back up what you're stating with evidence-based practice. So I think if we're, if you put this in the, that we get the research up there that talks about it. Um, and this was from years ago. This was from when I first went into, into speech therapy. Um, I've been in practice for about 13 years. So it came out pretty early when I started and the baby Einstein said, if you use it was videos like if you if you watch these videos your child is going to learn words and they also had flashcards okay so you yeah, had... I remember the dvds my mm-hmm. yeah my cousins used to use those mm-hmm. all the time so they they came out with this claim that that said you know you use you watch this video and your baby will or toddler i think it was aimed at toddlers um you know 12 to 18 months i think we're gonna have to look at that research um because it's such old research now um your baby is going to say, your toddler is going to say all these words. And then um, what the research actually showed is, is again, because from what we know from learning language is that you need to have positive interactions to be able to understand language and then use language and you need a communication partner to do that. Um, So they actually found a bunch of, one of the studies found that for every hour that the that a toddler watched baby Einstein versus a toddler that was interacting with their parent, the one that was was watching baby Einstein actually lost words compared to the one that was interacting and playing with their parent because the best way to learn language is with well, I remember you talking in, in the class yeah. about, well, we had a class about screen time and, mm-hmm. and tech. Yeah. And you were saying that there isn't anything necessarily wrong with screen time as long as the parents are interacting with the kids while they're watching their screens. Right. So the American Pediatric Associ- Association and the Canadian Medical, oh, what are they called? Canadian Medical, oh, they're going to kill me. There's, there's <laughs> Whatever their association yeah. is in Canada. They've set out new guidelines, I think a year or two ago. They've changed it up. Still pretty similar that if you're under two, it should be, I think it's like, like I think it's still zero under two. And I think above two, it's like one hour max. And so, but I think those are the guidelines 100%. Um, you don't want your child sitting all day long in front of the TV. Right. Um, we do, I have seen environmental deprivation in in my assessments um, where the parent comes in and says, oh, you know, they're watching TV 10 hours a day. Um, But I think there's also a reality to mom life and parent life. And I think for us, especially in this day and age, I think to almost demonize iPad use or iPhone use or electronic devices, I think if you are going to be on your phone in front of your children 
and to not allow them to have access to that, I think it puts off a bad message to them that, you know, there's something that they can have that you can. So I think if you are going to use the device and have them learn about it, because let's, let's be honest, it is going to be part of their life when they, as they get older, you want to make it as interactive as possible. So you do want to sit with them just like you would with a toy or a book. You want to sit with them and talk about what's happening on the show. So let's say it's Sesame Street. Then you're having a conversation. Oh, look, Ses- you know, Cook- Cookie Monster is going over to Big Bird's house. <gasps> I wonder what they're going to do there. Oh, look, they're playing on the seesaw. Remember when you were at the playground last week with Grandma, you went on the seesaw and you fell off and hurt your bum. Something like that. Right. So something where you are, if you are going to, plunk them in front of the TV, then you're making it as interactive as possible. Okay. So speaking of interaction, it's actually a good segue, is another component of, I keep going back to the Babbling Babies course because that was the experience (laughs) that I had working with you. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it really resonated with the dog training that I do Mm -hmm. and with a heavy emphasis on the importance of two-way engagement. Yes. And the importance of active versus passive play. Yes. And waiting for a response before continuing with conversation. 100%. Uh, so I'm always stressing with my clients that they'll meet their training goals a lot faster and build a stronger bond and more reliable communication if all of their interactions with their dogs are playful and fun and responsive. Mm -hmm. And I guess I just want you to riff a little bit on why that's so important when we're interacting with our babies. Mm-hmm. So children, not just babies, children, yes. toddlers, preschoolers, humans, even, like adults, everyone. So, so <laughs> yeah. when you, so preschoolers learn through play. So you practice the language that you have, both the understanding piece, what do you know, and the talking piece, which is what we call expressive language. So you practice your language skills during play. That is the way that you learn. Um, so that if you put a block on top of another block, then you say, you know, you learn, you can say the word on top. So that is the way that you build um, language. In terms of interaction and how important play is, is if baby plays on their own, I think independent play is important to be able to um, engage in solitary play is very important. But at the same time, the the greater chances you have to interact and play with another person either at daycare or a parent or a grandparent then you are able to do multiple steps of the same action over and over and over again and you get that back and forth so before you are ready to take conversational turns you can take um, play turns so you really want communication to be innate and motivating Um, so if you do something such as a flashcard one it's not so natural um, I always say compare it like would you want to do that in your adult life or someone just flicks let's say you went out to dinner and someone flicks a flashcard at you and says ball well I think that was very strange it would be, it <laughs> yeah. would be it's not what we do as adults in terms yeah. of conversations in, in a conversation what you have in an interaction is you ask questions you comment you go back and forth and you stay on topic so to bring out a flashcard um, or to tell a baby what to say like say ball it's very unnatural. I would never say to you, say cappuccino. We just, we don't do that as adults. Or no, as and it would come off partners. as being really condescending. Right. It's, it, so as I say to my parents all the time that come to the programmer in my private practice, we really want the language and the play to be motivating and fun. 
and coming from within because if a baby or a toddler and authentic because if it feels authentic then you're going to learn it and want to do it again and the more often you engage in either the play action or the or engaging in the ideas around that play so let's say you're you're stirring a spoon uh, stirring a pot of soup and pretending it's a pot of soup and you're hearing the word stir 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 and you're loving and you're having so much fun you know feeding your mom guess what you're learning all those words that go with it so versus someone lifting up a picture of a pot and saying pot Right. And in addition to learning all those words, you're also activating your imagination. You you're it. also learning how to communicate. Mm-hmm. You're learning how to observe body language and all. There's so many other components to it as well. You got well. it. Social interaction. Um, I, if, if we want to segue, like in terms of like the link between play and language, it's and why it goes hand in hand so much is it has a direct link to understanding of language. So, um, If you do not understand a word, you are not able to engage using that word in play. I have a lot of, my private practice focuses a lot on toddlers. And when I get um, a toddler coming in to see me and as I'm assessing them, I'm getting a little bit concerned about what they understand. They don't seem to be following directions or I say a word and they don't really seem to understand it. Um, I know, I always say I can bet on it that that child will not be able, at two, will not be able to engage in pretend play. Pretend play is being able to reenact what you see in everyday life and pretend to do it. So washing a baby, pretending to feed um, stuffed animals food, um, putting, you know, buses to sleep, pretending to talk on the phone. So I know that when you have an understanding difficulty, you cannot engage in that kind of play if you don't know the word. So if you don't know the word eat, guess what? You're not going to feed a baby. Right. Well, and that's, you know, and again, we'll we'll go back to it because there's a little activity I want to do with you later. But yes, it's very, that is something that's very similar to to dog training Mm -hmm. is that I often have my clients say that their dogs are stubborn or that they, you know, have selective hearing or there's various terms, but the reality of the situation is that the dogs just haven't actually been taught the words that, that they're hoping that they respond to. Or haven't been given the interaction piece. They haven't been given the opportunity to be, to play with their owner. Um, And I also think in terms of where we are in this day and age is, I mean, I'm an 80s kid. I grew yeah, up as too. an 80s kid. And I think um, we were at that change of playing all the time and video games. I think we were like that change. So I think a lot of us as adults now, most of our jobs, I'm lucky I don't, um, but most of us have a job where we're sitting in front of a computer. Right. And I'm also lucky that I, I don't. I'm, you know, I'm with clients as all day as yeah. well. But, you know, in terms of the video games, when, when I was a kid, and I'm sure the experience mm-hmm. was similar for you too, mm-hmm. that we were, became obsessed with video games because it was new and cool and innovative. Mm-hmm. But we used to invite all of our friends over to play video games with us. Yes. It wasn't an activity that you would sit in your room and do on your own. Right. Because now there's this like social world online where you can mm-hmm. make friends and play with other people where you never actually have face-to-face interactions. But it it used to be that regardless of what the activity was, even if it involved a screen, you were still having that shared experience with your Mm -hmm. friends. Shared experiences and also um, recognizing, being able to engage in all kinds of different play. So I think, and I think it's very, I think we live in a busy world and I think as parents, and I think it's very honest 
you forget how to play or you're not so sure about what to do with that toy. I don't know what to do with that toy because I've never seen it before. Um, and so a lot of what we do with when we in speech pathology or what I do in my practice is a lot of it, it's yes, it's communication, but we're, we, the play is really the vehicle to helping promote communication and going back to the basics. Right. And, you know, just staying on the play conversation yeah, yeah, yeah. for one more, one, one more second. Sorry, I might be going off on tangents. No, 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 don't. No, honestly, it's actually a perfect segue into all of the things that I want to talk to you about okay. is that um, also, you know, in, in the class again, mm-hmm. I loved that you often reminded parents to kind of follow their child's lead when it mm-hmm. came to the books or toys that were introduced. Mm-hmm. Because I find, you know, as adults that we get locked into this notion that you need to you know, play the way the manufacturer has intended the toy to be played with or that books need to be read in this linear fashion from Mm -hmm. beginning to end Mm -hmm. and that you need to read all the words in order to understand what's happening. Yeah. And you, you know, you focused a lot on allowing kids to, you know, use the toy however they felt they wanted to interact with it or Mm -hmm. to focus heavily on, you know, specific pages or words or images that they, they were liked. drawn to mm-hmm. so they could start the book on the eighth page if they wanted to and just only read the eighth page for an hour if, if, if that's what was interesting to them mm-hmm. and that's something that's also you know that I also bring back to my you know to my work as well is that if you focus heavily on the things that your dogs are naturally attracted to and that can hold focus mm-hmm. then you can take advantage of that by throwing all of your training in at those moments right. because if you've maintained focus then you know you can then deliver your instructions more freely and ensure that they pay attention for longer periods of time right right because if you you know if you set up a a specific scenario that your dog or your baby has zero interest in, Mm -hmm. especially with a baby, you can't, you can't convince a baby to, to be interested in something that they're not naturally interested in. Right. right? So if you take advantage of the things that they're already interested in and they're, you know, they're focusing on, then you can throw in whatever lessons or instruction Mm -hmm. you want to in those moments as well. Right. And they stay longer in the interaction if you stay longer in the interaction, you have a greater opportunity to hear the words that match what those actions are, what you're doing in that moment. The more often you hear those words, the more likely you're going to be able to understand. And the longer you keep understanding and hearing those words, then you're going to guess what? You're going to be able to say them because you need to understand a word first to then be able to say it on your own. So absolutely. So if you use what they're motivated in, whatever it may be, you can make any sort of play idea around that but I recognize that parents need that kind of support need those ideas um, because it's not so straightforward well and as an adult as I said we are Mm -hmm. very focused on using things the way that the creator has intended Mm -hmm. them to be used Mm -hmm. so it's like we've lost access to that playfulness and that imagination Mm -hmm. so we just follow the instructions and do and do what we're told to do yeah Mm -hmm. and it we find it really difficult when kids kind of deviate from that yes so I, I guess we want, you, I, you know, I'll, I look at it with my, my own son as like him being my teacher and showing me, you know, all of the different ways that these different tools can, can be used because he's just looking at these things as ways to explore and discover the world around him. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at it as like a piece of plastic that's obnoxious. Right. <laughs> but somehow, you know, he can play with it for hours in, in a million different ways. And mm-hmm. by watching him interact with these things, 
things and not guiding him, mm-hmm. we've had so many beautiful interactions between the mm-hmm. two of us. And right? it sounds to me like you're promoting what we call symbolic play, which is super important to have and to be able to, it comes out super early around 12 months, I think it comes out. And symbolic play is pretending that an object is something that it's not. Um, I actually had a 14-month-old in my room today for a speech and language assessment, and he took um, a pretend grape, and he put it to his ear, and he pretended to talk on it. And so he was pretending that the grape was a phone, and that is symbolic play. Right. So, and, you know, I have parents that ask me all the time, what should I bring on the, you know, if they're going on vacation, we're going, we're going on a plane, and I don't know what to bring. And I say, you know what? You can use anything like a piece of clothing you can use a snack a wrapper um, a seatbelt, and make it something else so the seatbelt can become tracks and then you can make a train out of your fingers and oh you've got a game going as long as the child has recognized symbolic play and and can engage in symbolic play mm-hmm. right and you know speaking of motivation yes uh with you know, with dog learning, as mm-hmm. I said, we use, you know, a lot of positive reinforcement and reward to teach dogs to perform a specific action or behavior. And in response, you know, in response to verbal cues and hand signals and environmental cues, and yes. then they create a positive association with those specific behaviors and they get excited to repeat them. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So what's, what's your take on using rewards to encourage specific behaviors? Uh, I know that this is like a, a highly debated topic in the parenting community. Some I wish people everyone could see my, my face right now. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, some, some people love using stickers or treats or access to certain activities in order to motivate their children to do certain things. And others, uh, you know, to say it nicely are highly against the idea for, for a whole slew of reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, so do you, do you use any sort of like, uh, you know, rewards in, in the work that you do? I do. I think I would be okay. a hypocrite if I said I didn't. Um, I think my reward system, this is a very tough question. I would say, I think the reward in such a, in, in my private practice, if you, let's say you're a three, Above two, I would say. Let's say you're over two and the, the session is done. You get a sticker, right? So you get a sticker for doing a great job and they all know they get a sticker before they leave. Um, and, and why do you do that? Why do I do that? Because it rewards them thinking, it, you know, they get a sticker on their hand. They get to leave. What I like about it is um, they get to leave with a sticker on their hand. And for me as a speech language pathologist, beyond the reinforcement and reward, for me it's I hopefully, if because the children that I'm seeing have a delay in either you know, the, the way that they're saying the word or they don't have enough words. So for me, I'm hoping that they can have a conversation and come up, go up to whoever wasn't in the session. Let's say they came with mom. Let's say they can go home and say to their big older sister, vote. Right, so I like to use it as a conversational piece, or reinforcing what they've, or to wait, a way to continue the conversation once they home. leave the room. Right, so let's say I give, let's say it's a child that we're working on motor speech. They're very unclear. Let's say there's a motor, a speech motor pattern I'm working on. Let's say it's the word. Let's do boat again. Let's say they don't say boat correctly. Then maybe that's a chance for them to say boat outside of the therapy room. So that's why I'm using that so kind of reinforcement. Using, so you're using rewards as a way to kind of continue. 
the the work the that you were doing. So you wouldn't out necessarily of my meet, use something like an M M&M. and M. I don't use M and M's because that's not something that would they would take with them as as they left the the session. No, I don't. I don't. I don't do like what like I think it's called discrete trial learning. Like they say something and they get something. Um, when I do like speech, like our motor speech work, typically how we set it up is you require imitation, which is you need to follow. You need to say what we say. So we say a word, like I would say ball, and you need to say it back to me in the correct way. And there's different verbal and visual cues that we give to help them. And then they get a turn in the game. So I guess from as a and dog do you trainer, provide praise as you're going through? Yeah, I so do. So you would say like, good job. Specific praise. Okay. So not just good job nice open mouth if I'm so let's say motor speech like in terms of the clarity um speech motor movements planning of movements it's it's a very it's a very severe form of speech production I would say I'm trying to say it in such a way that you the the audience can understand motor speech disorders um there's some fan not not fancy but there's a severe form called apraxia of speech um it's motor planning so in that case I wouldn't say good job I would say nice job doing a big mouth or you did such a great job putting your lips together when you said up so I want to make sure that when I'm giving my reinforcement that's very specific that's okay. probably very similar to what you're <laughs> yes. doing yeah, yeah so it is. so yeah so when motor but I do hear from a lot of parents and yeah. um you know and other and professionals that work in other fields mm-hmm. that they try to avoid using any sort of uh, you know, any sort of reward. There's no physical reward. There's right. no like give and take. Like you do this for me and I'll give you that. Like my right. reinforcement is very much like what you did with your mouth was correct. Like kind of a, a verbal feedback that what you did just now was the right way. And then they get a turn in a game. Okay. So the turn in the game, like being able to take their turn in a game. So they're getting access to something that motivates yeah. them. Yeah, that motivates them. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's let's talk about toys. Yes. <laughs> so there's tens of thousands of toys on the market. Yeah. And it's so overwhelming. And ultimately, most toys are very overpriced and very. environmentally unfriendly. Yes. And they end up getting used by kids for a couple weeks. <laughs> I mean, sometimes if they're, you know, highly valuable toys or the toys that are on your toy list, maybe they'll be used <laughs> for, for longer than yeah. a couple weeks. But... Mm-hmm. I've had so many toys come into my house and it's just like, I feel terrible because it's just landfill. Like that's, that's really all it is. Mm-hmm. And I guess I, you know, I, I saw on Instagram that you had this holiday toy list yeah. that you, that you were promoting <laughs> yeah. and I, you know, that was curated. And mm-hmm. I think that that's really helpful when we do live in this world where there's so many products mm-hmm. and especially when we can now just go on Amazon and order a hundred thousand things at three o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. I, I want to know, I guess, you know, why you chose the, the toys that you, that you did add to your holiday list. Mm-hmm. And I want to know, you know, what your criteria is for a yeah. great toy. Sure. And conversely, what the so-called must have items are that a lot of parents think they need when in fact they don't need them at all. Okay. So let's start with, you know, what makes a great toy? What makes a great toy, at the end of the day, it's what 
is motivating to a child. So what may work for one, what maybe one child will spend hours with, another child would have no interest whatsoever. Okay, so the most important part for me is the background is I've been doing this for 13 years. So there's certain toys, and even if you go into any, I think, oh, it's a speech pathology toy. Like people just know there's certain toys that are very, very, very well-loved. And the reason why they're very, very well-loved, they're typically open-ended. So there's many different things that you can do with one toy. Um, And so that's a big thing to me is thinking about what are all the different actions that the toddler or the baby can engage with. So if you take that pop-up toy, you know, the one with all the doors... Um, I think that's kind of become the the toy that people really take away from the program as a great one to do. Um, so one, it's easy for the parent to get involved in because there's more than one door, and we know that. So let's just yeah, go for ahead. one second. Yeah. So let's assume that no one has seen this toy before. So what what exactly is is this pop up toy? So it, it looks like you'll see it. It looks like a rectangle, and it has like usually depending on the brand, it has anywhere from three to five doors. And when you push a certain button, or if you twist a button, that door will pop up, and there'll be an animal inside. Right. And each one of those so called buttons requires like a, a different movement. A different typically. movement. You got yeah. it. And so I love that because I'm always looking. What is there more than one action that the baby, the baby or the toddler can use to engage with this toy? Can the parent easily implement themselves into that toy? So we'll talk about battery operated toys, okay. which I have a disdain for, yeah. um, which does not lead to allowing the parent to participate. So when I look at what I'm looking for, one is the actions, two, parent participation, three, longevity. So is this going to be a toy that, again, you talked about the landfill. Is this a toy that the the baby or the toddler is only going to get three months out of? Or is this going to last them for years and years and years and years? So those are, and also... Do those those toys exist? Yes, they do. That actually last for years and years and years and years? Yes, absolutely. I would say... So what would be some examples of that? The Um, only thing that's lasted in my household so far is my my kitchen. I was going to say a toy kitchen. Pretend play. Okay, so things like dolls. Dolls, dolls, toy kitchen, um, a a simple ball, a simple car, a car ramp, a train set. Um, uh, What else do I really, really love? Um, Like puzzles, like very chunky, chunky puzzles I love. Again, I'm talking about babies and toddlers. I'm looking, if we talk about the toys, because the toy list was up until... The toilet was from two and a half. We went up to four years of age. So from birth, from six months to four was were these toilets. So there are examples of toys that you could get for an infant that mm-hmm. they could play with until they're four or five years old. I think so, yes. Okay. There's not many. Um, you know, there's like top favorites of mine. One of them is that Spin Again Stacker toy from Fat, ba- Fat Brain Toys. That's one that I always bring out. And that is one when I'm on Instagram and I see my baby participants or my therapy clients they all have it in their background i see it sitting there and the reason why it's so loved is because one there's many actions to it so baby can a baby can they're not yet ready to do what it i don't know i guess i should describe what it is yeah i know what you're talking about but so it's a it's a there's a base and there's a stick and then there are and it's like a spiral there's five different spirals of different shapes 
and different colors. And we can talk about my take on colors and battery operated (laughs) toys in a second. Um, And so what you're supposed to do, so the instructions are you're supposed to take each spiral and put it on the stick and then it will slide, it will spin down and then land on the base and then you do it again. Um, So when you look at it across from baby to toddler to preschooler, a baby, if they're not yet ready to take that spiral and put it onto the rod or onto the stick and let it slide down, the parent can help the baby put it on to show them that cause effect action, that baby puts it on and lets go and it goes, so that's cause effect. But baby independently can maybe bang the two spirals together, which is exploratory play, which is what they would be engaging in around six you know around six months so um that's what i like it for for babies because they can engage it on their own they can watch parent parent can take their own spirals because i think there's five of them and show them what to do yeah and you love bubbles i do love bubbles (laughs) so why Um, why are you such a big advocate of bubbles i think kids love bubbles um so what is it about bubbles that you think because i it's it's true you can break out bubbles with almost any age group mm -hmm. and kids get really excited about it they do so what what is it about bubbles that are so exciting as an adult i still love bubbles so what is it about it um different shapes and sizes i think it reflects light they're light they i think they float i think flying things like things that that like that gravity defying kind of idea is exciting. Um, the fact that they can interact with it, like so that you you can touch it and then it disappears. So again, that co- it pops. So that cause and effect action, which babies and toddlers and preschoolers love and are very motivated. Whoa, my goodness. I just made that bubble pop or right. I just blew all those bubbles. So having that independence that they can actually um, do something to the bubbles and And I guess there's also I mean and I'm looking at this through an adult lens Mm -hmm. but I think that the other thing about bubbles is that it's different every time because there's an unpredictability to it in terms Mm -hmm. of you know what the size of the bubbles are going to be or how many are going to actually like you know last long enough to float down to the floor versus which ones are going to pop in the air so you never know it's not the exact same thing happening every single time Mm -hmm. and it all depends on who's blowing them some people are great bubble blowers and other people are not so great or maybe it's a machine and it pops out a little bit different um yeah but I think it's great because again I keep going back to it it's very easy for the parent to implement it's fun it's exciting so I'm again when I'm choosing my toys yeah bubbles are very easy for parents to do they know how to do it yeah Mm -hmm. I mean in so in the dog world, when it comes yeah. to toys, there are probably just as many toys for dogs as there are for children, which is unbelievable. Like, I just read a statistic recently that the pet toy and food industry has surpassed the pharmaceutical industry, which is insane to me. But people don't have the same understanding of dogs as they do babies and children mm-hmm. and and people so because of that they can essentially be marketed any product that they're told is going to improve either their dog's training or interaction or energy level or distract them or you know all these things and they'll and they'll buy it mm-hmm. so I always have a conversation with my clients about which toys are valuable and which ones are not because I often go to people's houses and they have 10 baskets of toys and their dog ignores all of them. Mm -hmm. And really you only need like three or four toys. Yes. So 
I always recommend toys that fall into really one of two categories. And I have four. Okay, interesting. <laughs> so uh, my two categories, just to make it really simple, are one, interactive toys mm-hmm. that require the like a human being to be present yes. and to be interacting with yep. them. So that could be something as simple as a ball or a frisbee or a rope to play tug with, mm-hmm. but that the dog can't actually play with that toy without another yes. person interacting with yep. them. And then the other category are toys that uh, drain an excess mental energy or that allow them to learn problem-solving skills because those those skills end up carrying over into other training and interactions that you do. So if they are going to have independent play, as opposed to it just being something that they're sitting there chewing on or ripping apart, which has no value at all besides maybe lessening anxiety or boredom, mm. uh, they make puzzle toys where you, for example, have, uh, you know, 10 different flaps. And again, similar to the, some of the toys you're talking about. I they, love my flaps. E- yes, each one of them opens in a different way or needs mm-hmm. to be manipulated with, you know, the dog's nose or paw in a different way in order to open. And then there's usually treats or various things that are hiding inside of them. So they end up spending half an hour, 45 minutes, figuring out how all of these different contraptions work in order to get access to the food that's inside. I want this for my own clients. <laughs> you could probably, yeah. I love finding things with like doors and things to open because it's so motivating. Yeah, no, it's, it's really interesting because I, I look at a lot of these puzzle toys and I, I have so many of them at my house because I use them for different videos and Skype clients and things. And I find that Crosby, and my son's name is Crosby, that he ends up playing with all of them. I'm sure he loves it. Yeah. I'll send you some links to some of these things. different things in it. I don't know what these are. Right. And some of the compartments are big enough that you could put like a little toy inside of them if you wanted to, or you could hide little farm animals or Mm -hmm. uh, it's almost like a kinder surprise. But you have to actually think to to get access to the little toys that are mm-hmm. that are there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so those are the only two types of toys that I recommend: is puzzle toys and interactive toys. Right. And all of the other things that are available on the market are just a waste of mm-hmm. money. Absolutely. And okay, so let's talk about battery operated toys. Yeah. And what was the other thing you were saying that you have a disdain for? There's battery operated toys, and there was one more oh. thing. A toy, uh, like focus on like colors, letters, numbers. Oh, right, shapes. right, right. Okay, so let's let's talk about battery operated toys. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's there's many factors to it. So battery operated toys, one, they're annoying for <laughs> for adults. For adults, yes. so it's gonna lead to the adult not wanting to play with their child when that battery operated operated toy is going off. Another problem with battery-operated toys is it may not teach the child's cause and effect actions. That, you know, if a baby presses a button, if the music or the, or let's say it's a music toy, you press a button and the music goes, um, the music has to be timed specifically that it needs to shut off so that every time that that child touches the button, it goes off so that baby learns, I did something and something happened. The problem with a lot of these battery-operated toys is they keep going. So baby doesn't learn that what they did was what made that go off. Um, It's very closed-ended. All these toys that have songs or music or, you know, special effects to them, like, or ABCs, 
um, they're very closed-ended, so there's not much more that you can do it to do with the toy. And so remember, when I'm looking at my toys, I want to see how many different play actions can I do. So can I engage in cause effect? Great. Can I engage in pretend play? So um, you know, like a simple ball roller. Can I then make it into a slide? Um, like a ball roller would be like where a ball like goes down a ledge. Like and a keeps, marble run? Yeah, like a yeah. marble run. So, you know, maybe I can make the marble run into like a water park for for animals and I can take my pretend play animals and then put it on. So um, the battery operated toys are very closed ended. There's only one way to play with it. Um, the other problem is if you do want to interact with your child, you are now competing with the music and the words that are coming out of it. Um, so it's very hard to have back and forth interactions with your child when you're competing with something that is going off that may be off topic to what's going on in the room. So they're saying shape, shape, circle, <laughs> circle. Um, and it doesn't match the interest of the conversation and you're at the moment. Trying, and you're also trying to like run as far away from that toy as possible as an adult. Yeah. So, and, yeah. And you can't have back and forth conversation with, when you're hiding in a closet. When you're hiding in a <laughs> yeah. closet. And also, the baby can't have a back and forth interaction with, with that item because it doesn't, it's not following the conversational rules. So, that's the how baby I feel about squeaky it. toys. Yes. <laughs> and so, the other problem that I have with battery operated toys, and we can even like, I'll, I'll send you to a really great link about why speech language pathologists, why we really do not like battery yeah, operated toys. I can link it to you so that, you know, I'm not talking out of my, yeah. right. That well, all is... of the, all of the things mm-hmm. that we're talking about that you've, mm-hmm. you've referenced to, I'd like to include those links in the description afterwards. Yeah, I can afterwards. give you some links. Um, the other thing that I don't like about battery operated toys, and I feel there's this huge push with later developing concepts such as shapes, and letters and numbers and colors so these toys are more likely to say a word like purple or square or one um if a baby or it's a pretty good impression (laughs) (laughs) um so for me i want motivating and functional words words that we know terrible twos um a toddler and preschoolers and babies typically understand more than what they can say right so if a child learns the word let's say let's say lots of children do there are a ton of children that come you know the parents will come in and bring their child and say oh you know my child knows all the colors and i'm like great you know what else do they have because if you have a toddler that has i'm just looking at the table right now red green white if they start crying, let's say this door is closed and they start crying and they're point they're sitting where you are, Ashley, and they're pointing and they're going, white, white, white. <laughs> you have no idea what they're trying to tell you. Are they trying to say, you know, open the white door or give me the white book or turn on the white lamp? You have no idea and it's a communication breakdown. If you take that same toddler, that same age, if that toddler had the word open, Right. Or, said, door. Open, or door or door and they pointed and you have you're not really sure where they're pointing they said open you are going to be able to respond more appropriately to that child and get the door open so that's why for me so what is this obsession with teaching colors and numbers and letters and things as opposed to valuable emotions or or action words or nouns I think it's not understanding the knowledge of early development. I think the toy companies think 
you know, this is what you have to teach children. This is the, these are what you learn in kindergarten. So we got to teach it as early as possible because that's what's, that's what is no, oh, well, if you have your colors, you must be smart. And I, I, I do think it's a problem because the focus on, if you are typically developing, one of the things that you're supposed to learn in junior kindergarten are those items. I would say, if you're typically developing, I never taught my child, any of my children, colors or not, because I'm so anti-colors, numbers, shapes, because it doesn't provide any functionality in terms of them being able to communicate effectively to decrease frustrations when they're not understood. Okay, so um, they all, my kids who are typically developing, they all knew their colors and numbers and shapes by the time they were 18 months. Because you just integrate them naturally into conversation. Other people were. So other people were teaching it to them. So I do think, I don't, I don't, I don't know really how to answer that, why that's like such a focus, but it is. I think people feel that those, that's what needs to be taught. Um, and I wish the conversation was different. I wish the conversation was the best things to teach babies and toddlers are action words like open and close and eat and um, help and come and go and wash and wipe um location words where is something where is mummy you know they're up they're under they're in they're out they're off they're on and object words like things that are very important them mummy daddy bottle cup those are the most important words um and that's what's going to give really long sentences. So that's the other problem with numbers and shapes and letters is that it doesn't really allow you to elaborate and make nice, long novel sentences. So if you know the word rectangle, what in a regular conversation, what does it give you? A really that. odd conversation. <laughs> <laughs> right? What can it, so think about what would be interesting to a toddler. That's a rectangle. Um, it's a purple rectangle. Put the rectangle in the box. Um, it's kind of a little bit limited to what you can say. Whereas if a if a child, I'll go back to the word open. Let's open the door. We're gonna open the box. I want to open the fridge. Um, oh look, that monkey is opening. It, it, there's so many w more novel ways that you can use an action word versus um, a more closed-ended kind of shape object shape. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, it's it's true because I, you know, as I said, I have a two-year-old. So I, yeah. you know, he uh, is, you know, just starting to use full sentences and, and talk nonstop, mm -hmm. literally nonstop. Yes. Uh, but no, I never intentionally sat down and taught him any colors or shapes or anything. Mm -hmm. He did have a very odd obsession for about six months with letters. So we, we did end up looking at, you know, books and flashcards and various things, but not because it was something I intentionally wanted to teach him, but because that's where his interest lay. You got it. So we ended up looking at flashcards and because of that, uh, he was able to kind of delve into this world that allowed me to then introduce a lot of different words that started with each one of those letters mm -hmm. or have conversations about the pictures that were on the cards that had other letters. Mm -hmm. uh, but no, I, you know, I, yeah, no, I, I, I completely get where, you know, where you're coming from, but it's just, it's confounding to me because I'm in these playgroups and social circles with a lot of mm -hmm. other parents that have kids that are of similar age yes and they find a point of pride yes. in being able to say my kid knows all of his 
it's, numbers. It is a point of pride. Or he can count to 10 or, yes. you know, but it's all just rote memory, right? Like it doesn't actually right. mean it's, anything. Exactly. So it's rote memory. There's a generalization piece to it. So when we look at language as being able to being able to put ideas in a novel way together, that's how you build language. language. So, um, you know, when babies... You know, some parents will say, oh, he can say one, two, three. But the child just is saying one, two, three. If I, if I show them, oh, show me one apple, no idea. they don't understand what that actual concept is. And so that's what, as speech pathologists, what we want is we want that ability to use vocabulary in a novel way to build different ideas. So colors, it's one little idea and if you're too focused on learning colors, you're missing out on all this other wonderful vocabulary used to build different ways. The, 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 the shapes and the numbers are going it's, to, it's very repetitious rote learning. It's going to make, it's going to, you're going to be stuck. Is this focus on memorizing and which in turn prevents kids from being able to string sentences together and understand their Mm -hmm. natural environment yeah is that one of the reasons that you're noticing for speech delays or are they unrelated to each other no 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 no. i don't i don't think that's related i think the children who i see who are delayed are generally like genuinely delayed um we don't focus on the numbers and shapes and colors so even if until the point that they had seen you, their parents had exposed them to the action words and, and various things that we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that would have like improved their comprehension or in, improved their ability to speak? Or do you think that they're just, that no matter what was done, they'd still be at, in the position that they're in now? Too hard to know. I think every child is a little bit different. Okay. Um, right. I of think, course. It's a generalization. It's a generalization. I think what, I think what you promote is what they're going to learn. So if you've learned colors and that's what they're going to learn, but I think it's going to stop them pretty quickly. They're not going to get too far with it if there's a problem. Um, I think typically developing children are fine because they are able to pick up the other words quite easily and they, they have their colors as well. Um, but I think if there's a delay, it's going to it's gonna really be noticeable. Um, so, you know, they have blue, great, but they don't have anything else and, and it's, it's we got to work on it. Um, the other thing, the reason why I'm, you know, when you look at that social piece and what we're seeing with like social resiliency, um, interaction skills, I think another reason why I like to focus on actions and locations and object, familiar object words and that being a, playing interactively with your parent is I want my preschoolers to be able to play appropriately on the playground so that if some little boy or little girl takes their toy that they have the one the interaction piece to know what to do what can you say in an appropriate way versus an inappropriate behavior and an or inappropriate ignore, behavior would be like hitting slapping okay, so grabbing like a physical back, response or doing nothing letting it happen so for me i really want to work on keywords and that back and forth turn taking so that when preschoolers get on the playground with other children they know how to socially use the the words and sentences that they have to get their needs and ideas met effectively and being understood by others so again that's where numbers and shapes and letters and colors will not help you right because if a kid on the playground steals your toy and you scream seven it's not going to help you (laughs) you need to say stop that's mine or my turn first, then your turn, or whatever you need to use to negotiate, or initiate, or you know, 
that in that conversation about it Mm-hmm. Okay, so before we go, this oh my is, goodness, yes, <laughs> uh, there is something that I, I'd like to do with the guests on this podcast, mm-hmm. which is read a letter from or an email from one of my clients that is asking a dog training question, and I want to know how you would respond if it was a parent asking you for advice on a child. Okay, so we're just gonna switch the word puppy or dog for baby or toddler or child this is great okay okay so and this is a really really simple one great so i have a 12 week old puppy and i'm losing my mind i've been working with her for four weeks in basic in, to teach basic commands but it feels like we're not getting anywhere at all she responds to sit maybe 10 percent of the time and looks at me like i have rocks in my head if i say down off leave it drop it or come is she too young to learn these things could she really be stubborn at only 12 weeks please help so let's say that parents reached out to you with a one one and a half yep. year old because mm-hmm. that's basically the equivalent like yes. a 12 week old puppy yes, would be say, I'm like 12 weeks yeah, so exactly. But a 12-week-old puppy would be about the same as like a 12 to 18-month-old. Yep. So they're expressing frustration because they know their baby doesn't have any hearing problems. Yep. Uh, but they're not responding to any simple instruction whatsoever. So how would you respond to them or what questions might you ask them? Uh, and the hearing test has been done, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, the first question that I would ask is you know when are you asking these questions you know um what were you doing is it during a routine uh like meal time or bath time like when are you asking that question like let's say it's you know where's your nose like maybe maybe they're testing body parts um so my first question is what context are you asking that question um my next question would be were they looking at you like were they actively engaged in that conversation or were they not focused on you and and on to something else so did you have the child's um attention and then the last thing that i would ask is was it motivating like were you were you were you asking them like was the question that you're asking them let's say it's body parts was it what was the reason behind your question was it performance like, why were you asking that child that question? Was it performance-based? Because mommy, because grandma and grandparents were there and you wanted them to perform this trick that you knew that they, they knew how to do? Um, so I would, I would kind of want to know more of what's, what the context was and why they were asking that and was it motivating for the child? And then from there, if all those link up, so yes, my baby was engaged, or my toddler was engaged because they're 18 months. Yes, they were looking at me. Yes, it was on topic and something, the question is something that was related to what we were doing. Then I would offer some suggestions. Okay. And and what would those suggestions be? Uh, Assuming that all those things did line up. That they didn't understand the question. Use gestures. So making sure that you're using your body and really pointing out. So where's your nose? Answer your question. Tap it here's your nose. So I would say, here's mommy's nose. Here's Johnny's nose and touch it. So I would answer the question. And what if it was a more practical instruction? Like Like something like, sit down so I can help put your shoes on. 
So you, so I would And they say, just look at you like they have no idea what you're talking about. So again, I would add in a gesture or a point. So I'd say, oh, sit down, sit down on the floor, wait, always give them a chance okay, to try so to you're, do it. you're training a puppy right now. <laughs> <laughs> sit, wait. <laughs> and, yeah. if, and if they're still looking at me like, I don't understand what you're saying, then I'll help them do it. Right? Or I'll show them myself. Oh, look, mommy sitting on her bum. Right. And in the dog training, and we'd, then I would we'd help lure them, them into the position. The, yeah. And then I would and help then, them sit down. And too. then as soon as they were in the position we wanted, we'd say, great, great you're sitting. You're sitting. <laughs> you got it. I'd be like, oh, you're on your bum. Right? Like Johnny is sitting on your bum. Yeah. yeah. So because, it sounds yeah, like it's the same. It's the exact same. And from my perspective, like there isn't, especially with dogs, I know that with babies, it's different because they... Um, are like rapidly developing at, at, you know, different ages. But at 12 weeks, if it was an infant, then we couldn't expect any no, sort no, of performative no, no, behavior no, no, no. at all. I'm just talking. Uh, yeah. yeah, of course. But, you know, from there with a dog, there isn't too young to learn ever. And with a baby, there isn't too they're young never to too learn. Young. Yeah, no, you, I, I read, you can I start reading to a baby the day they're born, or even when they're in utero. And they're also, you know, I, I come from the perspective that if a if a dog is not responding in kind to what you're asking, it is not because they're stubborn. It's because they haven't been shown what's expected yes. of them. That I don't believe in dogs being stubborn. I don't believe in children being stubborn. <laughs> and I don't believe in busy children either. Like when, when parents say, oh, my child's just busy. I don't believe in I get those either. Yeah, and I get those sorts of excuses all the time. Like mm-hmm. your training methods would work really well for a different temperament of dog mm-hmm. or for a different breed of dog or mm-hmm. for a dog that, um, you know, that came from a different background or there's, there's always an excuse, but I've the, like the methodology that I apply to dog training in the thousands of dogs I work with works for every single personality, temperament, breed of dog. It's Mm -hmm. like everything else is completely irrelevant. Mm -hmm. It's all about engagement and interaction and motivation. Yeah. That's why you and I get along so well. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So that's how I would answer it. But I think I would want some more background information because let's say they said, oh no, he wasn't looking at me, then that's where I would go. I would work on establishing that back and forth connection, making sure the child is looking at the parent before you state something. Otherwise, the communication message is lost. So just like as adults right now, like, and I'll bring what you said to me before we walked in. You apologized. You said, just in case I'm looking down at my computer because I need to look at my son, my notes. I'm not being rude. And so if the parent said to me, oh no, they weren't looking at me and go, well, they've broken that that back and forth interaction. So the very first thing is they, you guys need to be looking at each other before you say anything. Right. Because we as adult as adults, like right now I'm looking at you. I wouldn't I wouldn't be talking to you like that. That feels very strange. Right. And so I'd stop paying attention to you if you had your entire body turned yeah. away from me. Yeah. Yeah. And it, exactly the same thing with dogs that I always ensure that they find a way to get not necessarily just eye contact because that's not as natural for dogs as it is, mm-hmm, as it is for mm-hmm, humans because mm-hmm. it, sometimes it comes off as more threatening. Mm-hmm. But that you have some level of engagement that the yeah. dog is, you know, looking in your direction, mm-hmm. that they're waiting for guidance. Mm-hmm. And we talk yeah. a lot about waiting Yes, how exactly. To, how to use waiting to promote, you know, communication or motivation. Yeah. I or... feel like we could talk for literally of course we could. the rest of our lives. Of course we could. <laughs> okay, where, where can people find you? Where can people find me? So I have two businesses. So Babbling Babies is www.babblingbabies.ca. Um, we're on Instagram. I finally went on to Instagram. I think we're, we were now on six months ago, so... We're on Babbling Babies program. 
So, so it's at Babbling Babies, Babies, Babies program. program. Okay. Because if you do at Babbling Babies, you're going to get a very strange Instagram account. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not us. And um, my private practice. Uh, I'm in Midtown Toronto. My predominant thing that I see that we talked about at the beginning is toddlers and preschoolers and babies. Um, now that the word is out that that's, I see a lot of babies now. That's just where my profession, that's where my um, business has gone now. Um, so the best way to reach me, because I don't have a website, just because a lot of what I do is word of mouth and I'm sole proprietor, it's just me, um, would be speechwithrebecca at gmail.com. Okay, That'd great. be the best way. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>Thanks for listening. Are you looking to add a dog to your family? For a limited time only, listeners of Baby Puppy will receive 10% off our unique mutt-making package. Let us help you find the right breed, energy level, and temperament for your household based on your experience, expectations, routine, and personality. We always say there's no such thing as the perfect dog, but there is definitely a perfect dog for you. If you have a question you'd like answered on the show, child or dog related, email info at meetyourmutt.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at meetyourmutt or visit the website at www.meetyourmutt.com. Remember, this podcast is just a baby or puppy. And as they say, it takes a village. So please rate and review. Happy parenting. Baby Puppy is hosted, recorded, and produced by me, Ashley Balin. Production assistance by Koji Nagata and theme song by Pink Distortion Music.